John Maxwell once said, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. But exactly how do we train our leaders to do just that? Let's have ourselves a pocket-sized pep talk because the odds are against most leaders. And today's guest is here to help you beat those odds. A pocket-sized pep talk, the podcast that can help energize your business and your life with a quick, inspiring message. Now, here's your host, Rob Jollis. Marsha Dashko has been a strategic catalyst for transformative change and innovation for more than 25 years. Working with local and global executive teams, she's been a trusted advisor and guide for navigating both crisis and rapid growth. A leading authority on pivoting leadership, thinking, and action, she's the best-selling author of Pivot, Disrupt, Transform, a noted speaker, and an MBA professor on leadership. And I'm glad she's with us. Happy to have you on the show today, Marsha. Thanks so much, Rob. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Marsha and I spent a little time at an author's retreat where we we planned our action. So it's really is a pleasure to finally get you to sit down with me. Uh, so let's just start with this, this title of yours, not exactly passive, pivot, disrupt, <laughs> transform, how leaders beat the odds or, and survive. Now, every book has a story. So I, I've got this is a double loaded question. I want to <laughs> hear how the book found you. And then I want to hear how that title found you. Over the years that I've been consulting, I've been observing so many boards and leaders and executive teams and their staffs struggle, flounder, fail. And I go into organizations, sometimes they're near bankruptcy. And the owner or president might call and say, We've got all these problems, you know, can you help? And it's like, I shrug and I'm, I'm, I don't know, I have to take a look. But what happens is when I go in and talk to people and assess and look through my lens of, it, I've got a theoretical foundation of leadership and management. When I look through that lens, most of the time what I see is 50 to 80% of waste complexity, fear, dysfunctional behaviors, you know, you name it, everything you want to put in a garbage bag and, you know, schlup out. <laughs> and the thing is, they don't need to be floundering like that. And so I want I want them to stop. So that's why I wrote the book. There is a different way, a better way, a bolder way, an innovative way for leaders to let go of management fads, quote unquote, best practices, buzzwords and flashy trends. And if they let go of those, then they can pivot their thinking and actions. And through the, it takes a lot of learning. Transformation is hard. And it means learning new ways, beliefs, assumptions, uh, practices, tools in order to get on a path where they can wildly progress, improve, innovate, succeed, collaborate, all of the great things and have fun. Right. Right. You know, it's interesting you say that it, it's to me, um, I'm, I, I, I'm sort of trying to go back and, and figure out what causes these leaders to sort of misfire. And I'm thinking as a trainer, 
how many leaders aren't really trained as leaders they're, you know, they, they, they moved a widget faster than anyone else could move a widget. And somebody said, now you're a leader. Now you're, you know, you're going to manage these people. You're going to lead these people. And really they were able to do their job well, but that's, that's a completely different set of skills than leading. Right. So there's, there's a difference too of managing, creating and designing and managing to optimize and transform a system. And there's leading and inspiring people, not motivating them, but inspiring people. And those things, both of those are not well taught. Um, I periodically teach MBA classes um, when, I when I have time on developing leadership. And some of my students have said, Marsha, why is this my last class and I'm just learning the, these concepts now? Systems thinking, statistical thinking, theory of knowledge, theory of psychology, communication um, theory. Why, why are we getting one class at the end of our MBA program where really these concepts should be taught from when children are little all the way through grade school, through high school and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's not exactly instinctive, but I got to back you up for a second. Cause you said something really interesting that made, made me stop when you said not motivating, yeah. inspiring. So you've drawn a line between the two. Yes. Spell that out for me a little bit more. That's interesting. Okay. So in fact, a few months ago, I was speaking to 500 executive women and I asked them, how many of you feel that it's important to motivate your peers, your teams, your colleagues, and almost all the hands went up. And then I said, stop. That is not the role of leadership. That is not your job. Your job is to create an environment Create the workplace where people want to come and they are self-motivated. They can contribute. They can share ideas. They can learn and work together to improve the, the products and services to serve the customer. That is a huge difference because many leaders think, oh, I need to motivate my employees. Most often they demotivate their employees and they put... Um, many practices and, you know, the best practices and fads in place that demotivate when their real job as a leader is to create the environment where people are self-motivated. They're excited to come to work and contribute. Okay. Got it. That. So why I can't motivate them, but I'm allowed to inspire them. Shouldn't they be inspired on their own before they get there? Or how come I'm allowed to inspire and not motivate? Sorry to be hanging on to this, but it's a selfish <laughs> question, Marcia, because you know, I, I always sort of run the two together and, and we'll tell clients, I will inform, I will entertain, I will inspire, and I will motivate. And all of a sudden you you cut one wheel out of, out of my spoke there. So <laughs> just uh, there, I'm allowed to inspire, but I'm not allowed to motivate. Now don't get off this, I promise. <laughs> Inspiring. I love it. Um, so when I inspire, I might inspire by my question or by a story or by um, an observation that I share. That might be inspirational because they will find a link. They'll find that connection that for them is inspirational. 
we might have a conversation and based on our conversation, you inspire me to take an action, to change my, my focus, to get a new perspective. So I'm not telling people what to think or do or shift, but because I was triggered by something like inspirational that you said or you shared, it, it made me think, I have a possibility. I can go forward into my future with a new, a chase a new opportunity or, um, or experiment with something. Okay. All right. I'm going to let you off the hook. I got it now. Um, okay. And I think it's interesting that you draw that line. I've actually never heard anybody do that before. Um, okay. And I, I, and I, you know, if I had a little more time, I Googled both of them, but I, I'm getting the line now and that helps me. So. Um, it's a leadership book. And, and yet, uh, I, you know, I, I run this program, a meetup sometimes where I help people who are in career transitions and I get more, I put them in different areas. I get more people packed into that leadership area. There's a lot of them. And so it's, to me, it's almost like I call it a sea of sameness. And yet you've written this book. Tell me what makes this book different than, uh, you know, another leadership book I might pick up. So many of so many leadership books um, grab a bunch of characteristics or principles, and they're the old traditional thinking. There's not many books that challenge and question and say no. All of those fads and best practices, no, stop those. Those are the things that are making you and your organization struggle and flounder. And so get rid of that thinking. The, the issue is, for example, there's a startup company, for, for example. So the startup gets 10 or 20 employees and says, oh, now we need to hire an HR manager. HR manager comes in and says, oh, now, and they bring their quote unquote knowledge about HR, which, is, which might include performance appraisals, performance management, um, setting arbitrary numerical goals and 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 targets and people have to meet those and if they don't then put them on a pip the yeah. performance improvement improvement plan or something like that those are all destructive demotivating um and they will the the thing is people can fill their organizations with those practices and they will implode. They will destroy their organization, their culture, their collaboration, the teamwork, the communication. They will instill fear and barriers to people working together. One time I asked a group of a couple hundred um, CEOs, I said, um, how many fears do you think you have in your organization? And they talked, you know, together and said, oh, five or six. And I challenged them and I said, you need to, to start discovering you probably have more than a hundred. But, but also they, they were, they're thinking about, um, oh, that, that point that, that we were just talking about. Um, they don't, I asked them about 
how many of you have the values in your organization, such as teamwork and collaboration? Those are common, you know, values in, a, in any organization. And most of the hands went up. And I said, okay, how many of you have performance appraisals where you judge, criticize, blame, rank, and rate your people? And about maybe 70, 80% of the hands went up. Not everybody does performance appraisals. I said, okay, so on one hand, you want people to collaborate and work as a team. And then you are creating, you have this tool where you pit people against each other and you make them so you're creating internal competition and then on top of you on top of it you link that to the the compensation system so people are fighting for only so much money in the pot and even maybe so many bonuses or incentives or whatever that they're trying to meet the quota so so the thing is today with leaders um too many are not thinking. They get the position, they get the title, they they start the job and they go in autopilot. What did they learn before? What's out there that other people are doing? That's not the way to lead an organization. That's not the way to create the system and optimize it, transform it, and serve their customers. They need to question all of those things. And that is why the book is different. Got it. Because especially in the first third of the book, I talk about what to stop doing. And there are probably at least seven, eight, nine, ten 10 examples of these are the things you have to let go of. And if you do, you can then experience flow. And that's what we want in our organization, workflow, communication flow, information flow because we a leader really is if they have a foundation of i say three strategies th they can look at uh this three-legged stool is quality as a business strategy continual improvement as a business strategy and innovation as a business strategy and if they are always working those three they've got a solid foundation yeah. Um, and I like the way you've got it into th the three legs that, that that's the process piece I'm always looking for. And, you know, there's where we also, by the way, line up um, as a, as a trainer, uh, I, you know, obviously I want to inspire, but if all I'm there to do is inspire people are wasting their time with me. Um, that's kind of the easy part. The hard part is doing what you just did, which is putting a stool out there with three legs, which is saying, I've got something that is repeatable and predictable. Now you're going to stylize it and we're going to shape the shot. We were talking before we went on the air about golf. We're going to run a, a fundamental swing, but we're going to adjust based on conditions and fairway. Uh, we'll do the same. But I, I always appreciate a process because then we have a way of measuring what we're doing. Um, and you know, as they say, when you can measure it, you can fix it. So, uh, th and that gets us out of, well, yeah, put the woe on me. All right. <laughs> yeah. I might want to stop you when you just said, when we can measure it, we can fix it. 
why do you believe that? Oh, because when I can't measure something that I'm doing, when I have no measurement system, um, I don't really have an accurate way of of assessing whether something even needs fixing. Maybe I, maybe I just, maybe whatever I'm looking at is an anomaly. Maybe I'm in a bad mood. Maybe I had a, a rough customer. Now, I when I throw out things like that, I can't say so across the board in every situation. But in the world of sales, in the world of persuasion, influence, even in the world of training, uh, I I try and measure as much as I can through a process because I actually frequently don't, I care whether it's successful or not, but I care more whether I can make an accurate reading on whether it was successful or not. And um, I think too often, if we can give you an example, people in training will say, uh, you know, at the end, I want you to have a greater appreciation for how to do X, Y, Z. Well, measure it. How do you know whether they, at the end, are they going to just nod their heads and go, yeah, feel, no, at the end, you're going to have, you'll be able to you utilize three different skills, four different mindsets. You'll be able to do, and at the end, they can either do it or they can't. That helps me assess what I need to do more or less. So yeah, I, I, I buckle down on trying to measure as much as I can. There's certain things I can't measure. I can't measure trust, for instance, but many of the skills that I at least teach I try and process. So I'm always hunting them down when I'm talking to other authors that help. Yes, I would. I think you and I could have a really long, deep conversation about measures. Well, let's have a short, shallow one. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on there, folks. This is good. Uh, I just give me 60 seconds back. I'm I'm not fighting you on this. I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. Okay. One of my mentors, Dr. W. Edwards Deming, at some mentor okay already I'm, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed but keep going okay his one of his quotes is the most important measures are unknown and unknowable so so when you talk about optimization of the system things that you need in your organization things you need from leadership communication kindness empathy um teamwork uh I, I could go on and on with the adjectives the most important things sometimes even quality we can't measure now there are qualitative measures there are quantitative measures and with processes especially we can measure many and it's helpful right. as long as we're not just measuring one or two things because in to understand what's really going on, all the the connections and interdependencies of what what's going on between teams and and uh, impact to customers and things like that, we need multiple measures because we get different perspectives. That's why with my clients, I want them using different tools. I want them using cause and effect diagrams. I want them to use. Um, uh, run charts or uh, control charts. Um, they're just, they're like, I don't know, 11, 12 management tools and seven basic uh, measurement tools. But I want them not to just use one or two. I want them to use several so they, they get a bigger perspective and that leads them to ask more questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, you had me at Demings, by the way, uh, but I was a quality trainer for, for Xerox. So we studied Demings. And um, and I will tell you that as a quality instructor, 
we not only put process behaviors behind problem solving, quality improvement, you name it, um, and measured them, uh, but we were tasked with walking around with a laminated card in our pocket that had those processes. And at any given time, we could be stopped in the hallway, at least the trainers at, at Xerox, and said, got your card, and <laughs> you'd show that laminated card. So, uh, but I think we're in agreement that not everything can get can get measured or processed. And I'm learning that the hard way, by the way, as I, as I meet with more and more authors, that some things are just not measurable, but the intent is there. So let me pivot, if I may. And speaking of pivot, which is in your title there, uh, you use that as part of your title. When you use the word pivot, what do you mean by that for a leader? For a leader, that means you see a need and you make an often rapid change in direction to meet it. It's very simple, but um, leaders see the need, assess the situation, um, say, okay, we're going to do this. So create an, a compelling aim, pulls the team together to focus on that and makes a difference, creates the system and the processes to make a difference to serve customers or, you know, that can be patients, members, uh, students, whatever. And they can also create a brand new market. So it's not just current customers, but the future. So whenever you have a constancy of purpose, a compelling aim, you want to see it today, communicate it effectively. That's a whole nother conversation, which is, which is essential. Leaders have to be great communicators and they have to use many methods to communicate and they have to check and see what are what are you hearing teams individuals managers what are you hearing me say and and based on what you hear me say how can you contribute to that aim and then and then we can all go forward yeah that yeah. direction no i hear you um it's one of the reasons why you know for so many years i was writing about selling and i've you know the last couple of years have been sort of drawn into just the concept of authenticity of how any individual, not just a salesperson, but a leader, a manager, anyone, uh, you know, does that team believe you? I know what you're saying, you've got the words right, <laughs> but does that team believe you? And sometimes it's your actions, certainly, right. but a lot of times it's the way you're, you, way you're communicating. You and I'll have to dig into that one at some point, but, but why do you think some leaders uh, kind of can grasp the concept of pivoting? And some leaders clearly can't. I When I'm looking for leaders, I, I look for two things. An open, deep commitment to continual learning and challenging what's in place. And number two, courage, because their job is transformation, to transform the organization continually. And if they are not courageous they can't transform because they have to do hard things and try new things and i don't love the word fail but and the reason is because in our society we see uh, failures as bad things when oftentimes it it should be considered it's a step in the learning process so we have to the more and more and more we experiment and discover and and make mistakes 
the more we're learning. And if we're slow at learning, then we're going to be, we might not succeed because it's too slow. So we need leaders who can, who, who will take on being pivotal. And oftentimes too, um, we have leaders who are not that creative. And through the whole pandemic, I kept saying and uh, posting and so forth, through this time, I think the the people who will be most successful and be able to survive are the people who are the most creative. So they have to either, and let's say that, that I'm the CEO of a company, I'm very operational, I'm very whatever, but I'm not very creative. But acknowledging the importance of creativity for new ideas and new ways to connect with customers and future markets and to create new products and services, I have to have the environment where I open it up. And if I'm not creative, I have to encourage a lot of creative ideas and a creative process. And I have to have an innovation system. Um, on my website, there's a white paper that's about innovation as a system. We just oftentimes assume that, oh, well, by chance or by focus, we'll try to innovate and come up with new products and services. But no, it takes a system and that system has to be led. And um, the difference between having creativity and innovation is creativity is having the idea. Innovation is taking the creative idea to market and that yeah. might be in an, an internal market or whatever but it's um uh, taking it to be useful yeah yeah the book is pivot disrupt transform how leaders beat the odds and survive uh you know i i agree with you as an entrepreneur this is not foreign to me what you're saying but not everybody's an entrepreneur most entrepreneurs are not as uh, as fearful of failure they, you know, it's like I, I, I skydived one time and I, to this day, I think I was 18 years old, 17. I remember this instructor nailed it when he said, you are here because you are motivated by 51% curiosity and 49% fear. And I thought, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> He's got the number. That's about <laughs> right. And so a lot of times it is, you know, it's a, it's a close ball game in terms of how much is fear holding us back? Or how much is that curiosity winning the day? And uh, you know, there's a um, there's a, a a movie of mine. I I talk about it probably every twenty shows, but uh, called Defending Your Life. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, done in the nineties with Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks. But in twenty seconds, it's a it's a movie about sort of you know he about he dies and whether you move forward in the universe or go back. And there's a judgment. And so what's the criteria? And the criteria is looking at a series of, of events in your life where fear either held you back or you overcame your fear. So the prosecutor wants to show where fear held you back and the defender is showing you. And it really makes you sit back and think, yes, yeah, some of my greatest days were when, of course, I was afraid, but I was more curious. I, I decided that the risk was worth it. And Yes. Um, man, that's when you're living. That's that's the way to go. That's that's what I would say. I don't often list traits of great leaders, but curiosity is way up there. If I if I had that list, because um, when I was working with one of my first clients, 
we, we were making good progress in the first few months. And then I went to visit them and it was like, bam, they hit a brick wall. And it's like, what happened? You know, why did the progress like come to a screeching halt? And so I began talking to the people. I kind of, you know, just walked around and tell me what's happening. Tell me what's happening. Fear, 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 fear of change, fear of the unknown, fear of making mistakes, fear of on and on. And I thought, oh my goodness. Well, and that those were in the days where every time you turned around, there was a new workshop for something. So I start looking for a workshop to send them to about this fear topic. And I couldn't find nothing. But luckily, the book had just come out by um, Dan Reich and um, Kathleen Ryan called Driving Fear Out of the Workplace. I grabbed that book. I read it that I said, this is perfect. And now it's probably 25 years old. And I, I called Kathleen and I said, hey, when are you putting on your workshop? Oh, no, no, no. We, oh, I'm not doing, you know, we're not doing that because she was a researcher. She's like, I think she was a college professor. She was not getting up in front of a bunch of people. So she said, Marsha, take the book and create a workshop. I'm like, why do I have to do the work? So anyway, but my clients needed it. So that's exactly what I did. I created a two-day workshop called um, uh, How to Reduce Fear and Build Trust. And then I thought, oh my, and it just helped my clients so much and the progress, you know, came about again. And then I thought, well, my other clients need it also. So I did it with them. And then I thought, and then I I was uh, co-founder of the Bay Area Deming User Group, one of the largest, the largest study group in the world at the time. And we met monthly for over 15 years. So I introduced it to them and, and I ended up doing for 10 years to the public, multiple two-day workshops on the topic of fear and trust. And then I just got sick of it. I became known for the fear lady. I said, I don't want this. That's not what I want to be known for. So I stopped. But then in recent years, I have changed that a bit and come around because people need it. They need to. um, So now I call it, uh, whether it's a speech or workshop, fear, the short title, fear erodes profits. The longer title is fear erodes people, productivity, and profits. And if people don't think that fear is impacting that bottom line, they don't have a clue. Because like I said, there are more than 100 fears in organizations and barriers and so forth. And it's leadership's job to identify them, to um, have people talk about them, to diffuse the, the bad energy around fear, and to put you really a plan, uh, an organic plan in place to reduce the fears. You'll never eliminate them, but can reduce them and build the trust, which is done through more and more and more communication. Yeah. Boy, all, all trains seem to keep landing back at communication. You know, I'll tell you that, you know, I'm going to be 30 years in my business in April. And I will tell you that the hottest topic in the sales profession for 30 years has always been pretty much the same thing. Fear of change. When when in a sales world, that's what we're working with. So I can be working with NASA on Monday, 
and I have, uh, and uh, uh, you know, a bank on Tuesday, and uh, you name it, Toyota on Wednesday. It, 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 all the trains keep leading back to, I have this idea, we have a customer who's not completely happy, but the fear of change is outweighing the, the, the risk that they want to take to change it. So really, in my world, when we dig in, we build processes uh, that are measurable, uh, but we but but we build processes basically to help people pass their fear of change. It's the biggest objection out there, really. And quite frankly, I think it certainly creeps into your world of leadership because now I'm leading a group of people and, um, you know, things are changing within the corporation or the organization. And as a, as a leader, I may not like those changes, but they call me a leader because if I don't like it, I'll talk to somebody behind the scenes, you know, my manager or whoever. But in front of the troops, my dad was a Marine, in front of the troops, I, we're taking that hill if that's what the company just told us to take that hill. And I need to get people past that fear of change. I need to get them to embrace the changes of the company, which I think that that's the, that's the one time where you and I could share a stage and kind of ease into at least that element of change. Right. So and now uh, yeah. I think we're seeing especially um, the fear of the unknown. Yeah. So organizations that are laying off, hunkering down, tightening the budgets, um, cost cutting. Oh, sometimes, you know, some, I will say sometimes it makes sense. I'm not going to say that that's never makes sense, but sometimes their, and their fear or their anticipation that it, that they go sliding down, you know, a, a bad, uh, slide, um, they that will one of my colleagues used to say about this he said okay do you want to cut costs and I go yeah 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 we want to cut costs he said I've got the perfect idea for you and they're all ears and he goes shut the door and put the clothes sign up that will <laughs> cut all the costs no labor no utilities no you know no lease so on and they're you know they're rattled by that but it, it's the extreme to say, come on, you know, get get your courage up, take a look. Uh, if you think that things are going to slide in your industry or in your market or your customers are going away, because if we talk about like, for example, Peloton, there are only so many bikes that people can buy or ride or whatever. And at some point, maybe the market is going to get more saturated. It's not going to keep, you know, hockey stick going up. So take a look and anticipate and think, okay, the pivot is needed. We need to disrupt ourselves. We need to transform. Where are we going into the future? So if they stop, hunker down and let the fear eat away at them, they are not going to be able to look, pursue possibilities and opportunities, and they're not going to see the landscape. Leaders have to be scouts. They have to always be looking outward and then bringing ideas in and back and forth like the accordion. But their job is really, you know, creating the future and creating 
those new markets and serving the customers today. And it's not eat and it's not by going to your customer and saying, what do you want? What do you want? What do you need? That is not the way to, that is not their job. Like Dr. Deming said, the customers didn't ask for the light bulb or the, you know, the, the car or fax machine or whatever. Those come out of the work that an organization does, the teams do together. What do they want to create and, and put out there and see what kind of market do they have? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, you've nailed it. Uh, and you know what I like talking about you, uh, it, I'm enjoying is your passion for this topic. It it comes through in every answer that you provide. I'm sitting here kind of quietly smiling, going, you know, uh, I I appreciate passion. Uh, you know, we kind of come back to that. Maybe we'll have to do another talk sometime about how leaders communicate. I wish that we could bottle that up for people I, or build a process, which you got me there, by the way. There ain't going to be a process and we're not going to be able to measure it real well, but, but it's so important to me, um, you know, for, for people who lead me um, and when I'm leading, uh, you know, and it's not the end all cure all. It's not the only characteristic, but boy, it needs to be in there for sure. Okay. So fear is one of them. A couple, a couple final questions for you. So fear is, is, is something that, uh, you know, a strategy trying to help people pass that fear. Give me one or two other uh, fundamental strategies that you think leaders typically might miss out on. One thing is, I'm just going to pull a couple of ideas from the book because then they can dig deeper if they want to learn about those or listen to it on Audible. I, I had a bank president call me one day and tell me that she's read the book twice, bought it for the management team and the the CEO has listened to it four times. And I'm like, oh. what? <laughs> I haven't done that even. Did you read I, your book? Uh, many times. Yeah. No, but I, I mean, did it. you for the, for, for the uh, audio book? Oh, no, 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 no. I have a, <laughs> I have, and the more excited I get, I have a high voice and right. I go higher and higher. That is not very soothing for a reader. <laughs> I mean, it might have passion, but I could also like probably click them right off. So no, the the publisher asked me, but I said, no, please get a professional reader, and which they did. And she's fantastic. Good, good. All right. So you're cherry picking a strategy or two for me. Okay. Um, One thing, this is, we think it, we might think it's not that important because it sounds small, but it's huge. And that is language, the vocabulary that leaders use. That also needs to pivot. So there's an exercise that I do at conferences and uh, presentations and so forth. And that is, I have these large laminated signs and on the signs, um, I line people up on two sides of the room. And on one side, I give them laminated words in black and white. And on the other side, I give them laminated words with uh, lots of colors like neon orange and hot pink and so forth. So I ask the first side to, I'll say your company A, this is company B, um, read off your 
words. And it says, um, fear, cut costs, bottom line, layoffs, on and on. The, on the other side, it says, wow, fun, serve customers, process focus, continual improvement, innovation, on and on. So we have these two sides that read off probably 20 or well, 30 words. And then I ask them, which company do you want to work for, A or B? And of course, everybody says B. And I'm like, why? They And they say, well, that one is focused on collaboration and, and teamwork and fun and wow, and we're going to serve customers and and it's it's full of energy and passion and a foundation so that we can do all those things together and um, create new products and services over here it's depressing hmm. you know it's it's we just feel rejected and dejected and we go into our silos and there's um, fear so we're um, fear of not and we don't speak up and we we can't share and we're uh, judged and measured and blamed um, everything's about the bottom line um, and so but it seems small right well change the you know go and change the language but until you uh, it's such an aha for people to go through that exercise because they have to then assess, examine, check themselves and their team and their organization. How many of those, neg how much negativity and depressive behaviors do they have in their organization? And that's why they are stuck in the mud. They're floundering. But if they pivot their thinking and their vocabulary, their language, um, they're learning, then it's it, it at least creates a different workplace. Right. One that's yeah, created. no. Um, and and you know, there's your classic pivot, by the way, because I don't believe we're prisoners of thoughts like that. We're just um what we call in the world of training unconsciously incompetent. We just don't know that we don't know. It's one of the reasons I why I, you know, I wrote an article recently about why I love podcasting more i like blogging because when i'm blogging i'm sort of sitting there with my thoughts and when i'm podcasting i get to listen to your thoughts and uh it's never lost on me how some very simple things just you back to just one bat one back in sales just asking open questions instead of closed questions which everybody's learned but most people don't do just doing that is a dramatic change in a conversation and um, so little things are not lost on me at all. There's there's the little ones we hear about. There's the little ones that we implement. And that's why we need authors like you get our you know books out. Uh, and I think it's no coincidence that you got a CEO who wanted to hear it four times, uh, which meant that was not a casual casual uh, listener there. That's somebody who really wants to grasp it. So you should yeah. feel good about that. Uh, yeah. How about you personally? Last question for you. You personally, what qualities do you look for in a leader? You're the author. The commitment to learning, the curiosity, and the courage. Those are the most important things. Because, um, and the ability to really have an exchange, like you and I are having, really to, to have some new ideas come up 
and explore them and question them. And I, I know that the conversation will go further. I remember when my first career was in marketing and, and corporate communications, and then I was hired by a consulting firm owned by Dr. Perry Gluckman. And he and I would have, uh, he was he was like the absent-minded professor, absolutely brilliant, knew Dr. Deming's philosophy, how to teach it and guide the application of it. And we would get together when he was teaching me, we would get together for three, four, five hour conversations and go back and forth. Now I was reading at that time, five to 10 books a week. Oh, and wow. I was going to Dr. Deming, uh, I had gone to his first four day seminar, which pretty much went right over my head. So then I went back <laughs> the second time. That's when I met him. And he said he was going to, you know, be my teacher. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm scared to death. Talk about fear. What sky high. But then um, but he asked me to come back as often as I could to learn. And I went to 20 of his four day seminars. So I was reading, studying, having conversations with Perry, um, so on and so on. And that it just goes deeper and deeper. And I, I had thought, oh, I've got my master's degree. I'm done learning. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. It just I, I just started learning when I was in my 30s. Well, yeah, I'd pick my chin off the my jaw off the floor when you were hitting me with that 10 books a week. Uh, that's that'll certainly move the dial. Wow. Yeah, I flew a lot I went on airplanes. So I was had a client in Hawaii, two in Texas, one in Washington, D.C., PBS. So I was on a lot of planes. So that's where yeah. I did all my reading. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's too bad we didn't sit next to each other. It would have been a, a comical sight because... I've written every book that I've written has pretty much been on a plane. Um, so I'm the guy sitting next to you who also isn't talking, but I've got my fingers on the keyboard and, I, and, and I'm following an outline of some sort and, uh, and I've been nesting with some thoughts until we got to 10,000 feet and the wheel and, and the, the trays tables can come down. Um, and I'm ready to pounce on the keyboard as a writer, but I don't, uh, you know, I always felt I was traveling so much that, I didn't want to come home and be away from my children and my wife right. writing. So uh, I had this natural white noise up there and uh, that, but that's where I yeah. did it. So you're the reader. I'm the writer, at least in the yeah. air. Did you, and can you sleep on flights when you're tired? I rarely sleep on flights. It's just my own little system of trying to adapt to wherever I'm going. Even when I go international, I don't because I'll I'll fly for a day and a half if that's what it takes to get to been to you know Cairo a bunch of times things like that. I'll just I'll just grind it out, then wait when I'm there till it's ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night, and then I am so exhausted, my body doesn't care what time it is. So uh, it's just how I do it. I try I I don't want if I sleep on a plane, I feel like I'm resetting my system. So now remember that's just my system, but. Now, I I rarely, if ever, uh, I don't want to sleep on a plane. I want to be up. I just remember one time I was, it was a Friday night. I was so exhausted coming home from a week of consulting. I, the minute I sat down in that seat, I was out like a light, ne never felt the um, takeoff. <laughs> and I woke up when we hit the tarmac on the other side. So I slept solid. I didn't hear any anybody around me 
That's the per that's the perfect flight. I have from time to time because we're both workshop people, you know, drilled a few, you know, back to back two day workshops, been in New York, hit LaGuardia. And they have what they call their own rush hour on the tarmac. So you could be 18, 19 planes in line. It's oh. dark. And uh, at that time, I, I have fallen asleep you know, on the tarmac and woken up, you know, halfway to wherever I was, you know, home or whatever. Uh, that's the roughest time for me before we take off, if I'm really exhausted. But anyway, we could we could share road warrior stories all day long. Listen, you have been terrific. Um, and uh, I want to re remind people that this book that we're talking about, Pivot, Disrupt, Transform, How Leaders Beat the Odds and Survive. Good news, everyone. You can get it everywhere. So don't tell me you can't find it. It's everywhere. Uh, it's a very successful book. You'll you'll see when you get to Amazon, um, you'll take a look at some of those reviews and you'll even write one of your own because that's that is what we all want as authors. We just I, I don't ask as much, but I love asking for other people. So I'm asking for Marcia. Get that book and get yourself a review there uh, after you read it because you're going to like it. And uh, but get that review on there. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Tell me how people get a hold of you. So, yeah, it's easy if they go to Amazon, find the book, then they know how to spell my my name because that can be a challenge. Yeah, good luck and with that one. They, yeah, yeah. So, Marsha Dashko and uh, so, and my website is content rich. I really encourage people to go to the website mdashko.com because I've got blog podcasts, uh, white papers, um, a leadership assessment, a self-assessment that they can take it right there for free, um, uh, new workshops, uh, new video online courses. We just launched those two weeks ago and uh, a coaching. So if people want to reach out and um, and talk or share thing, anything they're struggling with, just jump on there and we can schedule that there you go uh you're, you're listening to the real deal here folks um believe me um marcia's got quite a footprint out there and for those of you who are going to take 15 attempts to try and figure out that last name i'm actually going to spell it for you <laughs> it that, that website is m and then her last name is d-a-s-z-k-o and you'll put a dot com on there uh, and again, somebody shoot me an email and tell me who got that one right the first time. Uh, I, I we we that's not the easiest, but there it is. It's it's pronounced Dashko, but it's D A S Z K O. Uh, listen, loved having you on. Glad we were able. This took months, by the way, to finally get Marsha to sit down and have this conversation. And we're so thank you so much. Very grateful and really learned a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was an, an amazing exchange. I love robust conversations. And you and I, we just could go on for hours, I know. And we probably will when we're done. <laughs> but anyway, folks, we'll do it again as well as we can next time. Until then, stay safe. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate and recommend it on iTunes, Outcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more information on this show and Rob at Jollis.com.